1: Hello and welcome back to Brexit Unspun, the Financial Times podcast where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Theresa May has promised to put financial services at the heart of a trade deal with the EU. But it appears that the UK government does not plan to make explicit its goals for the financial services industry after Brexit. A position paper on the topic, promised to industry in the autumn, has been put off indefinitely. The industry, which employs one million Britons and is the UK's largest source of exports and tax revenues, is clearly vital to the UK's economic viability after Brexit. So what is to be gained by this vagueness and what do we know about the government's strategy? To discuss this, I'm joined by our financial editor, Patrick Jenkins, leader writer, Robert Armstrong and our financial regulation correspondent, Caroline Binham. Patrick, could you first give us a broad outline of the options for the UK?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the industry, obviously with self-interest in the background, has been quite proactive in outlining the options as far as they see it to the government in the hope that government will take these options forward, or at least one of them as their position for negotiating with the EU27. Initially, you know, if we go back a year or so Everyone was focused on trying to preserve the so-called passporting rules, which basically allow banks and other financial services companies to operate out of London right across the EU, passporting their services across borders. That quickly became clear that that wasn't politically going to be feasible. So they've dropped the P word and came up with something that tried to approximate two the benefits of passporting, the buzzword being equivalence or equivalence plus the idea that you have as long as you promise to operate equivalent regulatory standards and equivalent standards in other ways, then you should be allowed access to the markets in question. More recently, we've had a couple of blueprints from two city organisations, which have gone into more detail. And the buzz phrase there is mutual recognition. This is basically building on this equivalence idea... But allowing for there to be different regulatory standards to some degree within a kind of framework, there could be some divergence as long as regulators and other authorities across the EU 27 agreed that they would cooperate and collaborate with those in the UK. And there was great hope, actually, that this would form the basis for a position paper from the government. I think those hopes were raised a week or so ago when Number 10 called in senior representatives from the financial services industry to talk about the government's commitment to financial services. Before that, the government had been very ambivalent, seemingly, about the sector. But within days, those hopes had been dashed with news, as you say, that the government seemingly now is not going to produce a position paper. I think the way to sum up the industry's views, as one European boss told me yesterday, this government is just hopeless.
1: So given this, Patrick, what is the industry planning? Should there be no deal?
0: The industry is certainly planning for the worst-case scenario, which is, as you say, no deal. The idea that they would have to restructure their operations, and this affects the banks more than others, but also asset managers and insurance companies. So they'd have to set up subsidiary operations in part of the EU 27. They could continue then to passport their services around the EU 27 from, let's say, Frankfurt or Dublin or Paris while maintaining a significant operation in London as well. Their first stage plans for that are likely to be enacted sometime this year with the relocation of, let's say for the big banks, typically a few hundred people moving or being employed in those new locations. They won't go as far as to rip up their current operations. They'll take things as slowly as they possibly can, but they're ready to press the button.
1: Now, Miles Chellick, head of the City UK Lobby Group, spoke to you late last year in our Banking Weekly podcast, and he warned that uncertainty was bad for all sides, not just for the UK. Now, we're just going to play a clip from that interview.
0: When you look at where the redeployments are likely to happen, it continues to fit with the analysis that Oliver Wyman put out roughly this time last year. The big winners from a disorderly Brexit or from a low access Brexit aren't alternative European centres, they're New York and the Asian centres. What you'll see in those circumstances is that people will move operations back to their American HQs or they'll beef up their American HQs or they will move operations into Asia where clients increasingly will want to book business, where you have a growing middle class, where you have economic growth that's world leading. And so what happens is that actually the European ecosystem, this sort of intertwined, integrated ecosystem that the UK has been a part of first arguably for centuries, is weakened overall. And that's the real risk.
1: So Mr. Czellick says Europe is vulnerable too if the negotiations fail. What are your thoughts on that, Patrick?
0: I think clearly the industry is going to spin the toughest line they can on this. But there's undoubtedly a great element of truth behind it as well. We're already seeing some roles being relocated away from London, those international operations that can be located anywhere. If London is going to be less of a natural hub for European business, that makes it less attractive to put international business here if that can be located in, let's say, in their home HQ in the US or in a growing hub somewhere in Asia. So I think that is a real risk, but it's something that the Brexit deniers, if you like, will continue to fight against because we're not going to see that easily evidenced. There's not going to be a huge swathe of movement. It's going to gradually be a drip drip over years.
1: Robert, could a Singapore style deregulated banking environment work for the city? And if not, why not?
2: Well, of course, it could work in theory, like a lot of things. But the first point to make about this is that it would not be consistent to have a deregulated market and have recognized equivalence with Europe. So that would mean we would be well and truly outside of Europe for purposes. I should say we, I should say you, Patrick. (laughs) We'd be well and truly outside of Europe with all that entails. And it would be in the worst case scenario, which Patrick just described, in which any institution operating in the city, which wanted to business in Europe would need to have probably a pretty substantial subsidiary somewhere within the single market. So that's point number one about that. Number two is you mentioned in your introduction how much the UK depends on tax revenue from city activity. If part of what you mean by the Singapore on Thames model is you're going to have a low tax regime, which a lot of places like Singapore do, then what's going to replace the revenue in the budget? That's question number two. Question number three is, Do you actually want to substantively get rid of these rules? Do you like them or not? So maybe we think, oh, bonus caps, which Europe is keen on, are bad. Okay, let's get rid of bonus caps. How do we feel about capital requirements for banks? How do we feel about having transparent clearinghouses for derivative trades? We like those things. And so we would be giving something up in terms of stability and safety of the system if we went to a lightly regulated model. So... Possible, sure, but it's a choice with puts and takes. Patrick, do
1: you have something to add?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the other crucial point about this is that if we did go down that route what would it do to Britain and the view of the population? I mean, a lot of people attribute the Brexit vote in part to dismay at the kind of them and us split, the haves and have-nots in the UK. If you go to a kind of tax breaks for financial services companies, this can only increase the antipathy towards that sector, and that's just not sustainable.
1: Caroline, what are your thoughts on the benefits of regulatory equivalence versus deregulation?
3: So a few thoughts, really. I mean, first of all, we've seen the debate recently evolve to one where we've got Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, and his leading supervisor, Sam Woods, starting to talk about equivalence of outcomes. So that's a little bit more akin to what Patrick was talking about with this mutual recognition idea. So... I should point out equivalence is a legally and regulatory recognised term under EU rules currently and it already exists for parts of the financial services sector. However, it's patchy, it can be revoked at any time by Brussels and also ultimately it's political in nature as to whether it's granted or not. And we saw in very detailed technical granular fields, years of negotiations for it to be agreed with the United States in parts of clearing, for instance. So the worry is that it's not going to be pretty wide ranging as it currently stands. However, what Carney has started to talk about is a sort of broader principles-based system of recognition. It's sort of an equivalence of outcomes that would be determined by some other independent third party, perhaps, you know, at a sort of IMF level and with some neutral arbitrator in case of disputes. And after all, we are starting at a point of being identical, not just equivalent, but we are currently identical with Brussels rules. So we have that advantage. I think the problem is that Michel Barnier, the EU's chief Brexit negotiator, has so far given short shrift to anything that goes beyond what is currently deemed as being equivalent. As to the wider points about deregulation, what I would point out is that quite aside from the global rules on things like banking that come from Basel, not from the EU, and the FSB that Mark Carney chairs, that the UK follows, quite apart from Brussels, it sort of negates current history in that actually the UK has been one of the leading voices in the EU and these international fora at setting high standards. So I think whether we're part of the EU or not, there would be a reluctance to roll those back. Sure, we have heard round the edges that things like bonus cap, parts of solvency II, which are the insurance regulations, might be rolled back. But those are just elements around the periphery that the UK has had longstanding reservations about. But broadly, I can't forecast that there would be any great movement to go for a deregulatory bonfire of the regulations type thing that obviously the industry is pushing for right now.
1: Now, Caroline, you mentioned the political nature of equivalence. I'd like to just come back to that and ask all of you what you think of the government strategy of keeping all of this so close to its chest. Can I start with you, Caroline?
3: Yeah, I mean, they've long said this, that, oh, in any negotiation, you never put your cards on the table until the very last moment. Well, look, this isn't, you know, some M&A transaction where we've got hardened company strategy that's confidential and due diligence that needs to be done, blah, blah, blah. We know what the UK endgame wants to be. Like Theresa May laid that out in a speech already in Florence at Lancaster House. So we know where we're intending to get to. So I think it's (laughs) unbelievable that that is the real reason that they are not wanting to be clear on this point. I think it's actually more that there is no consistent strategy. Theresa May, unfortunately, has the rather unenviable task of trying to reconcile two vastly different factions in her own party. I think the Treasury is broadly understanding of what the city wants and also what the Bank of England and the regulators have been telling it. But that is wildly different to what the Brexiteers would want. Patrick?
0: Yeah, I think just to take an optimistic slant on this for a second, I think one thing that heartened people who attended that number 10 summit a week or so ago was that they explicitly heard from both the prime minister and the chancellor the notion that they were now committed to trying to include financial services and services generally in a free trade agreement. That's something they hadn't heard definitively before. And, you know, all talk of free trade agreements was focused on goods, which, after all, is the minority of the UK economy and was driving people in the city crazy. The detailed kind of language around mutual recognition and regulatory equivalence and so on is basically founded on a free trade agreement principle. So if that is the direction that the government is going to go in broadly, then the detail is less important, I suppose, right now. And so that is encouraging. The discouraging part of it is that the detail is going to be very difficult. There is no precedent for a free trade agreement in financial services anywhere in the world. So it's going to be interesting.
2: And Robert? I agree with Caroline that it is very hard to believe that the cause of the silent The austere silence we have seen so far from the government is strategic rather than the simple result of not having made up its own mind. I think the problem is not only that the government is of many minds on this. The challenge itself is immense. Politically, look at it this way. Suppose, as Patrick suggested, that Europe does have something to gain from London remaining a financial hub for Europe. It's a deep market, not only in the terms of trading depth, but in capital, in people, the international language of finance is English. The reasons go on. People like living here. And suppose the people on the other side, the European side of the negotiating table, recognize this fact. Those people then have to turn to their political constituencies and explain to them why it is in the best interest of Europe that it's trading hub and its finance hub should be out of the eurozone. And I have no idea how you make that case in popular political terms.
1: Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks to Caroline, Patrick and Robert. And thank you for listening. We're going to be moving to a fortnightly format. So we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And we hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, please review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast app. If you have a question or would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, you can also email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com.